Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. The text will be on the screen as I read along. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. First item of business, as usual, kids uh, preschool to second grade are dismissed for the two classes. Reminder to parents to pick up your kids either right before or right after you take communion. If you're visiting today, I've never met you before. My name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. Uh, before I introduce our series and our message, I'm going to do something here that I may, may get in trouble for that I've never done before, and that is draw attention to my wife Tracy from the front. So we'll see if I live to tell the story of this. Uh, I'm doing this because it is a significant birthday for her today. Today is her birthday. Um, she jokes that it's the age that shall not be named. Uh, a hint of what age it is, it has a four in it. Um, <laughs> That could mean 24, it could mean 34, it could mean something else. But a second hint, if you didn't know this, I'm actually younger than my wife. I am still in my 30s. Uh, so that's another hint right there. Uh, so one thing I want to know, in some tradition, some uh, church tradition, she would be considered the first lady of Trinity. Uh, we don't typically use that language here, but it's one of the things to, that I'm reminded of, of just the importance that she has behind the scenes for me and for this church. She's, if you didn't know this, she's the one that dreamed of the location of planting and starting a church in this neighborhood. 
uh, many Sundays uh, because I'm up here and I am uh, very, very busy with my responsibilities. She functions very much so like a single mom uh, while I'm here doing ministry, but she faithfully brings her kids and our kids here every Sunday to hear the gospel being preached. Uh, so I just wanted to pause and... I always get choked up when I get, like, joy. Some people get choked up when they get sad, so I have to try to make it through this, of course. But I just wanted to pause and just say I'm grateful for this incredible woman. Many of you get to call her friends. Uh, we have four kids that get the joy of calling her mom, and I get the honor and the privilege of calling her my wife. So happy birthday, Tracy. <laughs> Uh, so I might, if I'm gone for the next three weeks, uh, please uh, call the authorities, okay? Um, <laughs> we'll see if I make it through this. We're doing a sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. We are just getting started. We're going to finish up chapter 1 today. Before we dive into the last verses of this chapter, let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray. Gracious God, your vision of peace and wholeness comes to us in sweeping revelations and also in tiny signs of hope. Kindle our hearts that we may be a hopeful people. Keep us from growing weary of waiting so that we do not miss the glory of your appearing. And as we wait for that glorious appearing, strengthen our faith right now by looking again at the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. And even so, right now, Lord, we ask that you would come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't ever get tired of hearing stories about people coming to the faith in the gospel, that the gospel is proclaimed and people's hearts are awakened to the glories of that gospel. I was recently with a gathering of pastors. We were networking and sharing in mutual encouragement and some training together. And at this activity, the leader of this gathering had us uh, all do an activity where we drew pictures on like one of those big uh, pages of white paper that you can hang on the wall, and we had to draw pictures that represented uh, different chapters of our life. So I drew a picture of uh, my life and had barns and the city of Chicago and the state of Minnesota with a heart where the Twin Cities goes and Trinity's logo, I put that on there too, which is incredibly hard to draw if you've ever <laughs> tried that, so I had to kind of explain what that was. But I recall uh, the, another pastor sharing his story about a specific chapter his, of his life. He's, his name is John, and he's a, a pastor uh, in Illinois. And he was sharing a story about when he was in college, there was a group of friends that got his attention because they were Christians and really believed in the Christian faith and were sold out to that. Uh, he wasn't there yet. He wasn't ready to believe. Uh, he was curious about their belief and why it was so important to them because he was at a moment in his life where he was feeling quite empty and without purpose. So to keep exploring the faith, he decided to show up at this small church one Sunday morning. And it was a small church that didn't even have the main pastor preaching that Sunday. It was a lay elder who probably has just one or two responsibilities to bring the message each year, so this isn't his profession. He wasn't exactly polished in his oratory skills. At the end of the service, and this is very accustomed in some small Baptist churches like this one, the, pe the preacher gives a call to receive Christ. 
And he said something that to, to the degree, if you want to turn from your sins and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then after the service, come up and pray with me to receive Jesus Christ in your heart. John, in that moment, was stirred up by the preaching of the gospel, including what Christ did on the cross for his sins, and he went forward to talk to this lay elder. And he describes the situation where the lay elder was surprised that somebody came there. He's like, I wasn't expecting this. He had probably been doing this for years. He was an older guy and did the liturgy where you're supposed to give a gospel call, but not one time did somebody come ahead. And here you have this young college student. It was his first time there. He came ahead to receive Christ, and they prayed, and that's exactly what happened. John's life was never the same again. He didn't go on to be a perfect person or a person that had it all together, but he was changed because now his life centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, you've heard numerous versions of this story before. Even great preachers from church history have similar stories, but also people within these pews have stories like that as well. And this story often includes some rookie in the pulpit that calls people to believe for the first time, and it happens, and dead faith is awakened. Or it could just be a nervous friend taking you out for lunch, and they stumble through the gospel, but yet that was exactly what God used to bring you to faith. In these humble moments, powerful things happen, and that is that dead faith is raised to life. Why is this story so common? We often convince ourselves that it's the polished orator, the professional evangelist, or the influential community leader, and those are the people that have the power and the clout to, to win people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus. Yet there are so many stories, and we know this, brothers and sisters, that there are so many stories where it's the lay elder, the nervous friend, or the quiet neighbor that lead people to the cross. Why does it happen that way? And that is what this passage is all about. To so that we can grow in our own confidence, each and every one of us, to proclaim the message of the cross because that message, not the person presenting it, has the power to save. And we're going to see this in three different ways. Look at the first one with me in verses 18 through 19, where we see that the cross has the power to destroy human wisdom. Look at verses 18 to 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. That word for at the beginning of verse 18 means he's carrying over his thought from the previous verses, the previous section. And last week we considered that there's these divisions that are happening in the church at Corinth, and they're happening because people are thinking that they are a big deal by the church leader that they follow. Because this church leader that they identify with is a big deal, they themselves inflate their own sense of worth because of the, the person that they follow. And so this church is dividing against one another by this perceived status that's connected to a church leader. In addition, this church in Corinth 
had a, such a concern with self and status that they carried it over into the way that they presented the message of the church. And so that meant is that they didn't concern themselves so much about the content of what the church was all about, but rather about how persuasive it was, how appealing it was to the culture at large. That's what they were concerned about because they wanted their status to look good and therefore the church ministry to look good as well. And if you had to de- de- undermine the content or switch it out, or, or if it was too controversial not to draw attention to it, then therefore you would do it as long as what you were saying was being persuasive and that it was viewed well by the general culture as well. But then Paul goes back here to the core content of the gospel message, the cross of Jesus Christ. And how does this message come across to culture, Paul wants them to ask, and he wants to answer that. He reminds the church in Corinth that the message of the cross is foolish. That's not good content if what your main goal is is persuasion and to look good and to inflate your status. You don't want content that, the, that your neighbor and that your general culture will consider to be foolish. Yet, that is precisely what God uses, is this foolish message to call people to salvation. Paul quotes uh, a verse from Isaiah, probably Isaiah 29, 14, to make his point. And the point he is making by quoting Isaiah is to say this has been God's plan all along. His plan is to destroy the wisdom of the wise and to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. God has said all along that he actively opposes, actively opposes self-centered people and prideful wisdom and the intelligence of of the world. That's what God's posture is towards those things. And why is that? Let's continue on in verses 20 through 21. Where is the wise person? Where is this teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It's best to get Paul's point in these questions if you're reading it with a sarcastic tone. Where is this wise person, this philosopher, this teacher of the law? right? Has God not used the power of the cross to save? Not any of these things. The wise man here is likely some type of professor or an expert in his field. This person has all the degrees, all the credentials, and the expertise. Yet despite this prestige in the world, not one expert, Paul reminds them, gave you the cross. Not one wise person gave you that message. And then he says, the teacher of the law, which is a scribe, a religious expert. There was not one religious expert, Paul is saying, that developed a theology of the cross or a faith that puts a crucifixion at its center. Even those who were immersed in the Old Testament where God reveals shadows that would point to the reality of the cross, even in that situation, they could not see God's work through Jesus Christ on the cross. They did not come up with it. And then he says the philosopher of this age, which is a person who would be a great debater, a great orator, 
And this would be a person that could persuade you into any type of philosophy. This is the type of person that could convince you to believe in something even if they themselves did not believe it. It's that type of person. And even with somebody that had that type of skill, he's reminded them that any great orator, any great public intellectual, did they come up with the framework of the cross? And he reminds them, absolutely not. Not any of these people, not any of these domains came up with the power of the gospel to save you. Now, Paul isn't saying that nothing good comes from this area, these areas of study and discipline. Paul also writes in other letters about general revelation, common grace, which means God has blessed humanity through these professions, through the religious expert, through the great debater. But that's not his point right here. His point is not about the general benefit to humanity through these vocations and through these experts. He's saying that the specific saving message of the cross did not come from any human source or any human domain, but it came from God and God alone. There's not a single area of knowledge that produced the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of that message. And that's why Paul asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, the world's wisdom doesn't just look foolish. He says that it is foolish. And why did God make the world's wisdom foolish? A couple, a couple reasons he gives. Number one, it is by God's design to make the world's wisdom foolish. Now, this does not, re, uh, does not mean that we're responsible for our folly. We are responsible for missing the message, for not getting it, because we are the ones who make good things we discover in this world into idols, and the things that we get puffed up about in our knowledge as a way to divide against one another and make ourselves feel good. We're the ones who don't begin with the fear of the Lord as the starting point of our wisdom. Yet God made our wisdom to be unable to discover the gospel for ourselves. God must disclose it. God must reveal it to us so that we could believe in the way of salvation. And that's the power of the cross and the power that comes from the Lord when the gospel is preached. A second thing that Paul highlights is that since we are only saved through the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, then nothing else is required for us to be redeemed. You don't need a certain IQ, a certain status in society, a degree to know God through Jesus Christ. None of that matters when the gospel is preached, and none of that matters when you gather as a church. There is no justification, therefore, to divide against one another and to inflate our status and as if to tell the world that if you have it all together, if you have the smarts, the IQ, and the status, then you can come to the Lord. The cross of Jesus Christ flattens that, and not only flattens it, it destroys that human way of developing religion and false structures to divide against one another, and these stupid barriers that human beings put up in front of salvation that comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. That's what we like to do as human beings, is to divide in different groups. That's the problem here. We enjoy looking down our noses and rejecting the other side and telling them this is the type of thing you have to believe in so that God will think that you matter, so that God will use you to spread his kingdom. Paul here is fighting against human division 
by reminding us that there's only one distinction that matters, and it's the distinction of this, answering this question. Do you center your life around the cross of Jesus Christ? That's the only thing he cares about. He doesn't care about status or IQ or smarts or intelligence. All Paul cares about is the answer to that question and how you answer that question. Do you center your life around the cross of Jesus Christ? Are you perishing because you reject the cross or are you being saved because you embrace the cross? And then he goes into detail about why people sometimes stumble with the cross of Jesus Christ, why it's such a hurdle for them to get around. And then we see the second point he's making here, that the power of the cross can be a stumbling block to people. Look at verses 22 to 25 with me. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So Paul here highlights a religious reason for the cross being a stumbling block. He highlights his own people and their demands for signs. The word demand here is key because throughout the Old and New Testament, God uses signs to get our attention. It was a big part of the ministry of Jesus and certainly the Holy Spirit used great and mighty things through the church in the book of Acts. So this isn't necessarily talking about the longing, the holy longing of a Christian who wants God to show up in a powerful way. That's not what's happening. This is a demand of God. This is a posture towards God where you are demanding that he show up in a specific way through a certain scenario, otherwise you will not believe in his message. It's saying to God, I'm in the driver's seat here, and these are my demands. So listen to my demands, and then maybe I will believe in you. I will believe in you if, I will believe in in you if I hear a literal voice from heaven, then I'll believe in you. I'll believe in you if I witness something extraordinary that can't be explained by science, then I'll believe in you. I'll believe in you if you miraculously remove the suffering from my life and you put those conditions before God and then he has to accommodate you. And that's a stumbling block to the power and the message of the cross, Paul says. In addition, he highlights the Greeks who look for wisdom. And this is not a wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, but it's a wisdom that's centered. It's a man-made explanation for things. And in these things, you're saying that God must fit into my intellectual box and the categories that I already have. And it's you saying to God, I will believe in you if you can explain yourself based on the categories that I have. I will believe in you if... I don't have to change what I always already believe or how I already behave in life. I will believe in you only, Lord, if you vote the same way as I do. And you put these conditions on the Lord, and again, you're putting yourself in the place of God when you do it. The gospel message does not accommodate those types of worldly categories. In fact, it is God's purpose 
to powerfully blow them up and humble us before we will embrace this message of the gospel. It's a message that calls us to repent of our self-centered posture towards God, to humble ourselves, and then to believe in the way of salvation that God provides and calls us to, not the one that we want to go on. And here is that message to remind you, brothers and sisters, the message of the gospel at its core, Paul reminds us, is this message, Christ crucified. And Paul is saying that every group in society during Paul's day would have a problem with that core message. If you were to go out into the streets, into the marketplace, into the the, the meat market or whatever it is in the, the city of Corinth, and you would have said, here's the message from God, it's Christ crucified, nobody would have been naturally appealing to that message. They would have been like, wow. That's amazing. It would have tripped so many people up. For example, if you're particularly religious and you believe in the Old Testament, then you would believe that there's a coming Messiah, God's anointed one, that is going to bring peace to God's people by defeating all of God's enemies. So the Messiah is a person of power and triumph. Crucifixion, on the other hand, is the execution method during this day that the Romans would nail you to wooden beams and the Jewish people would have viewed that as a person who is cursed. They would have reminded themselves of a specific passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 23.1, that would say that anyone who is executed like that, nailed to a piece of wood, is under God's curse. So if you believed in the Old Testament, then the message of Christ crucified sounded a lot like a cursed Messiah. So no wonder it was a stumbling block in those days. But if you're not into the Old Testament and you're simply a product of Greek or Roman culture, then this message of Christ crucified doesn't get any better. Crucifixion is what happens to criminals who did something severe enough against the state to warrant such a humiliating an excruciating execution. And even if you didn't have the religious understanding of the Messiah that the Jewish people had, you would know enough to think of a Jewish ruler or a politically powerful person, perhaps a king, to think that this doesn't make sense, that you would lay down your life for such a person if what happened to them at the end was that they were nailed to a Roman cross. It would come across to you as more of something like an executed ruler a treasonous king? Why would you ever give your life to somebody like that? This would be, in their categories, a king who was powerless against the Roman culture, or a criminal who is going to be followed as a king, and that would just be a ridiculous calling. It would be foolishness, as Paul says. One would have to be crazy in the head to lay down your life for a crucified king. So for everyone, the cross is not a good symbol, a good message to win cultural approval. It's the equivalent of having something like this in your sanctuary as the modern electric chair or something like that, and you're calling people to lay down your life to follow the one who was executed on it. I remember talking to somebody once about... uh, this reality of how even to this day it comes across as quite weird to our general society. Sometimes 
for those of us that, that do this every week and that this is really normal to have a cross on the center of your architecture or to sing songs about the cross or sing songs about the blood of Jesus, it just seems so normal. And for us, it is the power to save. But I remember uh, a specific family member who visited here once and we were singing the song, There is a Fountain. And you ever just pause to listen to the lyrics of There is a Fountain? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And if you are a person that has no category for that, that is disgusting. You're celebrating and singing, and some of you are crying over like swimming in somebody's blood. So you have to understand that if somebody does not read the Bible, doesn't have these categories, that sounds disgusting and weird. But for those of us with eyes to see, it is the most precious message and song that we have ever heard. It is the power and the wisdom of God because we believe and confess that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant who laid down his life for sinners. Jesus is the true and better priest who sacrificed himself for our sins and we turn to the cross and we center our lives on the cross because it is the good news that announces the defeat of sin and death and it's the way to know eternal life forever and ever and ever. And so I want to pause right now in case that there are folks here that are exploring the faith and this is just such weird things and there are really legitimate struggles that you might have with the ethics of the church or maybe this cultural moment that the church is struggling with, or whatever it is. But if you are here and you consider yourself a skeptic, the one thing I would encourage you to do is not move on from the cross to the things that you are really wrestling with. Because one of the things that you will find when you read Scripture, or hopefully when you talk to Christians in your life that you might be friends with, is that it's, it always should and ought to come back to this. This is all that matters. If Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, then everything he says about himself and everything he calls us to matters and it demands a response from you that can only be laying down your life for this king. If you're skeptic here this morning, don't move on quickly from that message. Linger there. Ask questions. Go deep and try to wrap your mind more and more around the central message of the Christian faith. The third thing we see in this passage about the message of the cross is that it is the only grounds for boasting. Verses 26 through 28. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. So now Paul is just looking at his congregation that he started in Corinth to make his final point. And he's being descriptive here because you've got to remember that he already said that this, this is a diverse group of people from different statuses of society. But for the most part, the church in Corinth was consisted of a bunch of people that were considered nobodies in their culture. They were not from the upper crust of society. 
And we would see a little bit later, we're going to see a little bit later in chapter 11, that because the congregation was made up of these types of folks, and then there was a minority of people that were from the upper crust of society, that this created tension around the Lord's Supper. But right here, he's lingering on the fact that most of the people that were gathering in the church of Corinth were not a big deal. The culture didn't care what they thought. They didn't consider them smart. They were never invited into the room where it happens because they were not a big deal. They were not even born from a famous family. But Paul says, but God, but God chose you. He didn't wait until you got a degree. He didn't wait until you gained influence. He didn't wait until you built a name for yourself. He chose you. In fact, Paul says this is how God likes to do things. He loves to choose the fools to shame the wise. He loves to choose the weak to shame the strong. He brings people into his inner circle who are on the margins of society and he gives them grace and he gives it freely to those that the world has despised. And so he does that. He chooses what the world considers to be utterly worthless. He chooses the have-nots so that he can display his power and bring down those who think they are strong. So God doesn't need us to have status to save us. He saves us by sheer grace and sheer grace alone. And I was thinking more pastorally about this point because it's, it's odd because I couldn't quite make the same application here because this is a urban culture around higher institutions of education. And many of us might be here and we have white-collar jobs in those institutions of higher learning or in, uh, and we've gotten master's degrees and even more advanced degrees than that. And I, I know this because even based on some feedback that I would often get from individuals who come here, that we come across as a group of professionals that kind of have it all together. And maybe implicitly there might be a pressure for us to feel that way here, to present ourselves very professional-like because we find ourselves in a portion of our city that is described that way. But I think a passage like this can still challenge us, challenge those of us that are tempted to act like we have it all together, to impress one another, to brag about careers and degrees and the articles that we read that enlighten us and that other people just don't get this cultural commentary on a specific issue. That's the temptation here. But what if we practiced more and more as a church just laying that junk aside and bragging a little bit more about the things that we struggle with, the weaknesses that we have, the parts of our story that we're not particularly proud of. And to do that because we are reminded, we're reminding ourselves and we're reminding of one another of our humble origins, of the fact that we were saved by sheer grace and sheer grace alone. I, I think about this and practice this myself to humble myself because I have to remind myself, if you don't know my background, I'm, I'm a rural guy from southern Minnesota got straight B's my whole life. And I scored, I kid you not, I scored a 19 on my ACT. And if you didn't know, that's terrible. That's terrible. I only got into a college because I was willing to pay the tuition. That was it. <laughs> but yet God is using this rural guy, he scored a 19 on an ACT to minister to all you very smart individuals. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy script. And it constantly reminds me, I shouldn't be here. 
preaching to you, surrounded by all these institutions of higher learning, right? That's, that's, I, I have no business being here. But God chose a guy from rural Minnesota with a terrible ACT score to minister to you. Start bragging about stuff like that in your life because it'll help you practice boasting in the, in the cross and the cross alone because that's what God is calling us to do. Look at verses 29 through 31 to end this text. This is the purpose of why God is doing it this way, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God saves us by sheer grace so that no one may boast before him. The haves and the haves not come to the Lord the same way. They come to him with nothing but humbling themselves and opening their hands to receive his grace because we have one that laid down his life for our sins. So what place is boasting in the Christian faith? There's no place for boasting in self in the Christian faith because God wants us to boast in him and his glory alone. When someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and embraces the message of the cross, then their boast is in God and God alone because it is God who brings us in union with Christ. And it is God who, who gives Christ as our wisdom and it's through God's divine wisdom in Christ crucified that we in union with him can now declare Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, that he is our righteousness, he is our holiness, and he is our redemption. In other words, Jesus Christ for us is everything and we are nothing and that is one of the most liberating things to believe in this entire world and so therefore boast Christian boast not in self but in God boast in the gospel and boast in the cross of Jesus Christ I want to conclude um, by trying to illustrate uh, gospel culture in a way that I've done before. I remember telling a story of going to a, um, this dive restaurant, this dive bar in northern Wisconsin with a friend. And I just remember this place because it had this distinct culture. It was you go in there and they had chainsaws hanging from the ceiling. And so you'd go down there and have, you know, your French fries and whatever, and you had chainsaws right over your head, and you're just praying, Lord, I hope it holds. I hope it holds so it doesn't take me out. And there's just this distinct culture. I mean, that's why those were there. It's, they were very proud of their northern woods culture, and they wanted to put that on display. That, that little story for me, I come back to it because I think we're always telling people what we're all about by the decor in our houses or our physical spaces, or even the things that we boast about, the things we talk about, the things that we brag about. And sometimes I think it sounds like the church is mainly about different approaches to ministry or about political opinions or about whatever. Fill in the blank with the other thing. But I think even coming into a physical space like this where you have this enormous cross in the center of the sanctuary reminds us each and every week where the power is, 
where the message of the Christian faith is centered on, and what we should always be talking about. May we be known as a people in our neighborhoods, in our professions, in our friendships, in our family, to be mainly a person who is about the cross of Jesus Christ, and not to shrink back from that, because remember, it isn't your uh, polished oratory that brings people to saving faith. It's not whether or not you have it all together and that your life is nice and tidy. None of that matters in that moment. Remember, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are loved by the Father because the Son laid down his life on the cross, and his presence is with you right now through the Holy Spirit to use your imperfections, your nervousness of sharing this gospel with others, to be the very power of God to bring people to salvation even this week.